just done. Father, regardless of what our thoughts may be about this world and um, how it should be run, our worldviews, Father God, um, I believe whether we're one end of whatever spectrum, Father, we can all agree um, the importance of remembering when humanity is at its worst and at its best and the need, Lord, to honour those who paid a price, um, Father. So, Father, we just want to lift up those families, Lord, who still were affected by World War I and World War II. And, Father, we want to pray for all those people that are involved with conflicts all over the world. Lord, whatever side they might be on, Father, knowing that the God of all the earth loves them and loved them enough to send their own, his only son. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for resolution. We pray for diplomacy. We pray for above all these things that our world may know its saviour. Because, Lord, the only way of bringing real lasting peace isn't through a UN resolution, as helpful as they must be. But, Lord, it's through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for your gospel, the message of peace, to spread, Lord, with those feet that bring it, Lord, all over the world. Lord, we just lift up our world to you again. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for our part in disharmony and war. And, Lord, that we will play our part in peace. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, it is obviously Remembrance Sunday, and it is that time in the year when we tend to reflect and consider the past. Um, We think about um, figures like millions. Um, We think of uh, all those people that gave their lives. We think of those who survived uh, and led terrible um, existences, dealing with the psychological and the physical effects of war. We think about the way our society changes in the midst of conflict. We think about how our own stability and prosperity collapses when nations declare war on each other. And we often ask the question, don't we, when we think of those two world wars particularly, is can you imagine how frightened they must have been? We often ask that question, can you imagine what they must have felt like in the trenches? Can you imagine, imagine what it must have felt like as the bombs fell on London? Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been young and hear the air raid siren go off? Can you imagine what it would be like to be in occupied Europe or in other parts of the world, um, Asia, uh, Australia, plus, and Japan and places like that? Can you imagine what it must have felt like? to know that tomorrow may never come. What it must have, how terrified must people have been to watch the rise of Adolf Hitler and watch him take most of Europe so easily. And I've been thinking about that word fear this week or uncertainty that goes with it uh, because fear uh, is about the most terrible emotion there is. There are many terrible emotions, of course, but fear is a terrible one. Fear can cripple a human being. Fear robs us of our confidence. It robs us of our self-assurance. And you know this because when something goes wrong, suddenly your mobile phone and your bank balance become irrelevant in a split second, don't they? Your nicely manicured hair and body suddenly become less of a priority when you're frightened. You think, I'll give it all up to feel safe and to feel secure once again. Fear reminds us of just how fragile we are as human beings. This week, Donald Trump won the US presidential election. I'm not going to talk about US politics, because that's not my job. My job's to preach the gospel. Um, But many people feel scared. Many people, regardless of um, what country they're in, are not quite sure what the next few years hold for our world. And it's fair to say that many people across the world feel frightened feel fearful of what may or may not come next. And I won't comment on any of that because that's not my job. 
All the more reason then as Christians to pray for our government. All the more reason for Christians to pray for the next US president, to pray for global stability and to ask God that those that have power might wield it against injustice and for the oppressed in humility, in reverence for the living God, not for their own ambitions. So let's think about fear just for a few minutes this morning. What is fear? Somebody once gave that well-known acronym that fear is false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Somebody once said that fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or threat. And so what does the Bible tell us about fear? Well, the Bible has quite a lot to say about being afraid and fear. And I'd like just to take you through a few things this morning. The first thing we learn from the Bible is that fear is a byproduct of sin. That fear is a byproduct of living in a fallen world. You will always be scared until the day you die. Because you will never live in a perfect world this side of your death. And then the resurrection into eternal life through Jesus Christ. Fear and sin and a fallen world go hand in hand in hand. The Bible tells us quite categorically that fear and terror were never part of God's original plan. In the beginning when God created the world, he made it good. I discovered this week that the Hebrew word for good in Genesis also carries the term and the meaning of beautiful. God made a good world, not just one that functioned correctly, but one that was beautiful. And you know that when something's beautiful, you can't be scared of it. You can't have terror where there's beauty and goodness. But that's the world God made. There was a world where there was nothing to fear. There were no danger. There were no threats. There was just life and life to the full. Yet in Genesis chapter 3, where it all went horribly wrong, we see for the very first time in human history, the word fear is used. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, when Adam and Eve disobey God, and eat the fruit from the tree when original sin came into every single one of us. I'll read it to you. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And also she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then both their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid It tells us of that moment when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's clear instruction. Here is a perfect world. Enjoy it. Multiply. Spread out. Love it. One single command. One way you show you love me is that you don't touch this one tree. But they fell to temptation. They ate the fruit. And sin entered 
the world. And so fear has to do with sin. Sin and fear go hand in hand. And so what do we fear as human beings? We fear absolutely everything. You can be frightened of water, you can be frightened of trees, you can be frightened of pews, you can be frightened of books, you can be frightened of people, you can be frightened of absolutely everything, the future, the past, other human beings, you can even be frightened of God. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they became aware of their nakedness, they became aware of their sin, and they became frightened of their holy God who walked with them and talked with them. The Bible tells us that every single human being will stand before the judgment seat of the living God. When we die, every single human being will, judged, will be judged by a holy God. And that is frightening prospect. Except as 1 John chapter 4 says, there is no fear in love. And as a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your saviour, when you die and you stand before the king, there is nothing to fear. Because Christ has already dealt with your sin this morning. Don't think God's not going to remember everything you do. He will. But only Christ can wash you clean. So God forgets everything you do. And there is nothing to fear on that fateful day at the end of history. So sin and fear come together as a package deal. You can't have one without the other. And the reason sin brings fear is because what sin did in the Garden of Eden is disorder God's perfect creation. What sin does is take God's created order and spin it on its head. It puts God as the king down at the bottom and puts us above him. And so fear is a byproduct of living in a broken world. That is why Christians will experience fear, the Bible tells us. The second thing the Bible says about fear is that fear is powerful. People speak about being paralyzed with fear. Um, I must tell you a story. No, I don't know. It involves Andrea. Maybe it won't. No, don't worry. Um, I'll save it for another time. But um, people have phobias about all sorts of things. No, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. We were in bed. When we first got married, um, we were in bed. And I was laying there, obviously, as you do. And, um, and Andrea woke up saying, there's somebody by the door. And for the first time in my life, I thought, I think I'm actually going to pass out. I'm so frightened. And I thought, oh, my word, this is it. This is one of those, I'm going to die in bed. I'm actually going to die in bed. And I laid there thinking, you're a newly married man. You've got to be tough for your wife. At least pretend. She doesn't know. But, you know, this is the moment to at least pretend that you've got a bit of guts. So, Lord, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to grab that chair, and I'm going to do one of those, and hopefully it'll work. And I counted to ten. One, not that. And I turned around and there was a dressing gown, but there we are. (laughs) But I was absolutely petrified, absolutely terrified to the core of my being. And that's what fear does, isn't it? I know a friend of mine who has a fear of... um, uh, mice and uh, he's absolutely terrified of the things and in fact when he has a, mi- a mouse in his house um, he, he can't concentrate he can't work he has to he wants to go out all the time he can't he, he says to me it's embarrassing I hate it and I say to him it's embarrassing no, no don't say it to him but you know he's terrified he's got such a phobia that he can't actually function while there's a mouse running around somewhere in his house because I couldn't care less whereas if it was a wasp then I'm in trouble um, so there we are but the bible tells us that fear is actually very, very powerful. In in Proverbs chapter 29, um, hang on, Proverbs 29, sorry, well, I don't see why the the, uh, projection people have all the fun with the, not going quite right. So Proverbs 29 verse 25 says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare, 
But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Fear of man will prove to be not inconvenient, not a bit difficult, but a snare. When you're terrified of people, actually, it's like being in a trap. Um, when we're frightened of people, we can't really function. Uh, that famous quote by JFK says, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Sometimes you're just frightened of people not because they've done anything, but just because you're frightened of them. And you function as if they've got dominion over you. Hebrews chapter 2 um, just talk amongst yourselves text it. chapter 2 verse 14 to 15 talks about a different power in fear it says since the children have flesh and blood he too that being Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of of death people are frightened of people or they're frightened of their mortality they're frightened of death i read a quote once that said fear is the main source of superstition and equally the main source of cruelty often when we're scared we lash out to protect ourselves or we become very superstitious but when we lose our fear if we lose that sense of being frightened what do we become tough we become unbelievably strong And uh, some of those nasty rulers have lost their places in their countries when their people have lost their sense of fear. Because that's the only way a dictator can rule through fear. And I often watch those films where the hero isn't frightened of anybody. You ever watch those sort of films and you get someone who hasn't got any superpowers, they're just a regular guy, and uh, he or she is just not frightened of getting beaten up or getting chucked off something, and they're just brave, they jump in and ask questions later. And I'm in awe of those people. I'm in awe of those people who haven't got any fear. Wouldn't it be good to not have fear? The Bible tells us that you can be a slave to it, and it isn't God's plan for us. There are two commands about fear for the believer Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12 says do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy do not fear what they fear and do not dread it all this talk of political upheaval in the world as Christians what message do we send our friends and family when they say oh I'm so frightened of who's in charge now I'm so terrified of what's going to happen what do we say back are we saying back to them yeah me too I'm really scared of what's going to happen next. What does the Bible command you to do? Do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. How can we be good news to a terrified world if we join in the narrative of fear? We're meant to be people that are liberated from our fears. We're meant to be people that say, I don't care who's the president. I don't care what happens with Europe. I'm not bothered about places that might fight each other. Although I'm nervous about it, I'm not frightened of it. Because my God is where? On the throne. My God is still ruling. And I have no reason to let fear dominate my life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Quite. Jesus spoke in really direct terms, didn't he? Um, I find it amazing that the church has managed to make Jesus Christ quite dull at times because you don't say things like that and become boring. We've made him boring, I think. But actually, that's the sort of thing Jesus did. Actually, no, don't be frightened of people that can kill you. Be frightened of God who's got control of your soul. He's the one you should be worrying about. And then he dies for you so you don't have to be worried by that. But fear shouldn't 
um, dominate our lives. So how can we live without fear in our lives? Well, there's just a couple of points just to finish with. The first is to grasp the difference between fear and real danger. Uh, the problem with toddlers is they, they have no sense of fear or danger, do they? So they see the edge of the cliff and they sort of do that. And then the parent behind is going, oh, and they're falling apart. But we must grasp the difference between what's to be scared of, uh, what's real danger, and what real fear is, and what real fear isn't. There are 365 verses in the Bible. I've said this many times. 365 verses that start with the phrase, fear not. Because every single day, God doesn't want you to be frightened of anything. The difference between fear and danger. And in fact, actually, increasingly, my prayer isn't, Lord, give me less trouble in my life, but give me less fear of trouble in my life. You're never going to not have trouble in this life, are we? That's just life. But we can get rid of the fear that goes along with it. In Psalm 23, I'm just going to find it at my own pace. Um, Psalm 23, 23 even, um, David writes... Uh, this famous psalm, which starts off so nicely. But it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And he talks about being led by nice places, quiet waters, restoring my soul. But then he says in verse 4, this famous line, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or the deep darkest valley, I will what? Fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they are what? comfort me they comfort me I want to be like David not saying Lord keep me from the dark valley because that's just not how life works we get ill we lose friends we get made redundant things go horribly wrong in our lives and the lives of those who don't believe in God but we have the privilege of walking through the darkest valley with God without fear somebody once said that sometimes the Lord calms the storm and at other times he lets the storm rage and calms the child. I wonder when the last time you actually asked God to give you boldness in your troubles rather than take your troubles away. Maybe pray both. Second thing you need to do, or we need to do, is to fear God. Fear God rather than fear the world. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, a very famous uh, beginning, very famous verse in Proverbs, says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. That word fear in Proverbs isn't about being terrified of God. It doesn't mean be scared of God. It's about awe. It's about reverence. It's saying reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom. And actually what the Bible tells us, if you're going to fear anything, fear God. Be in awe of God. Don't fear other people. It's about grasping the majesty of God. One of the great quotes from Narnia, which I'm sure you've all watched religiously, um, is um, when Lucy gets to meet Aslan... And so when she gets to meet him, I think she says to Mr. Tumnus, you know, the half-horse, whatever he is, um, she says to him, at least in the film, um, is he safe, Aslan? And Mr. Tumnus says something along these lines. Of course he's not safe. That's how Mr. Tumnus speaks in my mind anyway. And he says, no, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. That'd be ridiculous. But he is good. Our God isn't safe. So you must be in awe, reverent fear of him. However, he is good. The Bible's answer to fearing people is an increased reverence for God. That verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 that we've just read, don't fear those who can kill the body, 
Have a reverence for the God who is in charge of your soul. Don't revere sinful, evil people if you want to defeat your fear, but focus on the God who's really in charge. They might be able to affect your present, but God holds your eternity in his hands. In other words, put disaster and trouble in their proper place. They may be powerful, but God is above even them. God is a better foundation for our lives than fear and terror. Proverbs 14. Oh. There we are. Proverbs 14, um, 26. says, He who fears the Lord has a, has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. And then verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. And then Proverbs 19, 23. Never mind. <laughs> says, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and the one that rests content, untouched by trouble. When we honour God and awe of God above people we're frightened of, we actually are untouched by trouble, even when we go through it. And the third thing is grasp the difference between what men can, men can do to you and what God will do for you. Somebody once said that fear is educated into us, and if you wish... It can be educated out. And in fact, the challenge for us as Christians every single day is to educate into our hearts the words of life contained in this book. What has God promised you? He's promised you everlasting life. He's promised you a hope that goes beyond the grave. He's promised to be with you even in that darkest moment. He's promised to know your name, count the hairs on your head every second of your life. He's promised to be with you regardless of what happens. He's promised to work for the good of those who love him if they trust him when things inevitably go wrong. He says in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 7, uh, John has a vision of God and a vision of heaven and writes these words, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more mourning or crying for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He then said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes would inherit all of this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. For the record, when the Bible uses words like son and him, actually in the Greek that is a generic term for male and female, in case you're thinking as a woman here, am I not allowed to go to heaven? That's not how it works. It's men and women, male and female. If you want to deal your fear a death blow, you need to deal your heart the words of life and begin to trust them even when life is uncertain. I want to tell you a story as I finish by a guy named Polycarp. If you've done Alpha, you've already heard this story, um, but it's my favorite story. If you, anyone know the story of Polycarp who's not done Alpha? Good, excellent. That's always good, isn't it? He was Bishop of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey 
uh, about, I think it's about 300 AD, that sort of time, two or 300 AD. That's when the Romans were in charge, obviously, and there was a Roman governor um, just in that part of the world. And as the Romans were in that time, they wanted everybody to worship Roman gods and particularly to honour and worship them. And so Polycarp, uh, with his unusual name, was a Christian, he was a bishop, and he refused to worship this Roman governor down the road in Smyrna. And months turned into a few years, I think, and this Roman governor got quite cross, quite angry, quite jealous, I guess, and he decided enough was enough. He was going to put Polycarp under house arrest and threaten him with his life. So soldiers came and arrested Polycarp, even though his friends said to him, run, they're coming. He said, I'm going anywhere. He stayed in his house, and I think for about two weeks he was under house arrest by these burly Roman guards, these Roman soldiers. And in fact, he was so lovely to them, so full of confidence and grace, that in the end they didn't want to hand him over to the Roman governor because they liked him so much, and he was so forgiving at what they were doing to him. But the time came and he was dragged to the Colosseum um, in Smyrna. And he was tied to a stake. And he was told in no uncertain terms by this Roman governor, if you don't renounce your saviour Jesus, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to set you alight until you die. Don't you fear the flames. Do you know what Polycarp said? He said, go on then. That's a modern take on it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He said, do it. Essentially, I don't care. He said, I don't fear this flame because it lasts for just a moment. Then he said this, you have got an eternal flame coming your way that you really should be frightened of. And then he said, I followed Jesus 83 years. Why am I now going to turn my back on my saviour? And then they lit the fire, and he died. But at no point in that story was Polycarp frightened. Wouldn't you rather be like him than the guy hiding behind the settee? Wouldn't you rather be like him, prepared to stand and even give your life because fear has no hold on you whatsoever? What Polycarp had was an awe of God that was stronger than even death. So maybe our future's are uncertain. Maybe there'll be another world war. Maybe our economies will crumble and we'll all lose our houses and our pension funds and our wealth and our um, access to medicine. Maybe, maybe, maybe. There is much uncertainty, but there is nothing to fear because there is a king and a kingdom that will have absolutely no end. And our citizenship doesn't belong here. It belongs there. And we are waiting for Jesus to return. He is our hope. He is our saviour. He is our king. And with him in our lives, we have nothing to be scared of. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up these thoughts. Father, as we join in with our country and much of the world in remembrance of those two wars. But Lord, all the conflicts that still rage. Lord, possibly hundreds perhaps in different parts of the world, small and large. Father, we know many people feel scared. Lord, make us a bold people. Make us a people, Lord, that are not just without fear because we have comfort, but make us a people ready, Lord, when uncertainty does come, which it most certainly will. Make us a people prepared to be uh, without fear, fearless, 
Lord, even if our economy crashes, even if there's conflict on our shores again, may we be the ones who stand up and say to the world, there is nothing to fear. Do not fear. Trust in the King of Kings. Trust in Jesus Christ. May we be the ones, Lord, that lead the charge against terror because we're the ones who are supremely confident in our eternal life and our forgiveness in your Son, Jesus Christ, and your love that knows no bounds. Lord, only he died. Only he rose again. Only he is coming back. Only he is King. He is our King. He is our God. And Father, we must be ready to stand in confidence when our world falls apart, which it will, because Lord, that is what you've said in your word. So Lord, make us ready to stand with your hope. And Father God, may we be people preaching the gospel, not with our words just, but with lives that are bold as well. May we not join in with our family and friends who say, aren't we frightened of all this? May we say, no, I'm not scared because Christ is my rock. And may we bring people into your kingdom just with our example. Father, we lift this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.